Future City is sponsored by Prudential. Bring your challenges. Funding for Future City is also provided by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. From WYPR in Baltimore, I'm Wes Moore. Welcome to Future City, our monthly radio conversation that moves to the debate from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next. Each month on this show, we lift up examples of innovative ideas making positive changes in other cities and ask, could it work here? Is it already working here? And if not, why not? So picture this. A student walks to school. She doesn't have to walk far. She just walks down the stairs to her kitchen table. She opens up her laptop, puts on headphones, and is greeted by her teacher via video chat. She spends the entire day working through individualized lessons at her own pace, and she never even leaves her home. This isn't as futuristic as it sounds. In fact, many students are already learning this way. Even students still attending traditional schools are surrounded by technology. Public schools in the United States now provide at least one computer for every five students. And those computers don't come cheap. Schools are spending more than $3 billion per year on digital content. As some background, and also in the interest of transparency, I should say that my producer, Katie Marquette, grew up surrounded by education technology. Her mother, Barbara Dreyer, founded the online public school Connections Academy. I also have a vested interest in education, having founded the social enterprise organization Bridge to U, devoted to reinventing college for those students who might need additional supports. Considering so much of online education isn't confined by boundaries or state lines, today we won't be focusing on one city, but instead we'll explore how different companies and schools have incorporated technology into education. Today on the show, We'll debate the effectiveness of technology as a learning tool and also look at ways that organizations are trying to democratize education, whether it's through online education models that are free and accessible to students around the world, or in the case of one Baltimore-based nonprofit, ensuring that all students, particularly girls and underprivileged youth, are taught how to code in school. Our first guest today sees a bright future for education technology. Jason Palmer is a general partner in the education-focused venture capital firm, New Markets Venture Partners. He's also held executive positions at Microsoft, Schoolnet, and Kaplan, and he recently wrote an op-ed for the website EdSurge entitled, Why I'm Optimistic About the Next Wave of Education Technology. Jason, it's great to see you and great to have you on the show. Hey, Wes. Great to be here. So, so first, why don't you explain what exactly your firm does and what the focus is of New Markets? Sure. That's easy. So New Markets has been around about 14 years. We're the longest-running education-focused venture capital firm. So what we do is we invest in innovative tools, processes, companies that are working with K-12 schools or colleges and universities to improve student outcomes. And so so when you say you're looking to invest in things that can actually grow and be profitable, et cetera, what are some of the, some of the things that you look for and look at when you're examining some of these companies? Well, the most important thing is to verify, does this product or this solution actually work? So what we do is we contact a number of the client schools or colleges that are using the particular company in question and say, why did you choose this company? What problem were you trying to solve? How is it working in your schools? How do the teachers like it? Are you going to renew this company's product or solution? It's about verifying that there's real customers where it works that love the product. That's the core. And what are some of the things that you've seen, uh, some of the trends that you've seen that you've been incredibly impressed by? What's exciting you right now? Well, what's exciting me the most right now, and this is sort of outlined in the Ed Surge piece, is that when I started this 20 years ago, schools were barely wired. 
there were not that many computers in schools. If there were computers in schools, they were Windows 95 computers. Now we've got situations where there are whole banks of tablets that are available. There are 3D printers that are out there. There are robotics coming into schools. It's a completely different situation. There's no question about the infrastructure, the wireless, the, the even the this teachers. People used to say teachers are kind of concerned about technology. They might be a little bit scared of technology. That's not the case now. Most of the teachers that we talk to are really enthusiastic about it and trying to figure out which tools they actually have time to use, which ones are the best. It's a very different circumstance than it was 20 years ago. And it's come in a a few different waves over that time where at the beginning there was concern, but now there's just excitement, lots of excitement about the possibility. What were some of the concerns that they had when they first started looking at these different products? Well, at the very beginning, it was you have to go back to the early 2000s to remember this, but there was a question about should for-profit corporations even be in schools at all? And it took a little while for folks to realize, wait a minute, the people that are starting these companies are ex-Teach for America teachers. They're folks who actually were faculty members themselves before. A lot of these education entrepreneurs are academics who've turned into people who want to start businesses to get their tool or their innovation to go from just one school to a whole district to possibly the world. And and that's a big change. That's part of why people are not as concerned anymore as most of these entrepreneurs are actually educators themselves who become scaling enterprisers. So you, you just mentioned a word that I think is important to, to highlight. I want to get your thoughts on that word is teachers. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the things that technology can do is figure out ways of actually introducing technology and introducing education directly to the student. And then the critics will say, but is that not undermining or undervaluing the importance of the teacher? What's your response when uh, when the criticism comes in that education technology actually undermines the teacher? It, the best education technologies empower the teacher. Um, the, the best way to think about this is that students do a good amount of work where the teacher is giving guidance to the whole class. But this whole world where the teacher is lecturing and all the students are listening, that's not the way uh, a school day is for kids K through six or even preschool these days. Kids are asked to work on projects by themselves. Kids are asked to work in in groups on projects. And working with a computer or with some type of technology as an individual student or as a group where it's giving you kind of a game-like assessment or it's teaching you a particular concept, there's lots of research that says that students are learning from these engaging, interactive, well-created tools, personalized learning tools, and they are not always just one student and one computer. Oftentimes, it's a multiple student or even teacher-enabled experience, and uh, the best way to think about it is that teachers are the orchestrators of the use of these education technologies in their classroom. It's not like you're either with a teacher or you're with a technology. The teacher still is producing the entire educational experience. The technology is just a part of it. In the ideal world, you see the combination of a teacher who is then being bolstered and utilizing technologies to help them do their job better, but not necessarily replacing how the teacher's usefulness is applied to the student's educational process. Absolutely. I mean, in the most extreme example, a lot of people compare this to medicine. There was a time when the doctor would check to see how you're doing by putting their hand on your forehead or looking at you to see if you have a, you know, a different skin color or a different, like a, a discoloration or something to figure out if you were ill. 
Now, doctors use lots of different tools to really diagnose the patient. Uh, Some of those are taking your blood. Others of them are running you through an MRI. The same thing is happening in education technology. We're giving teachers better tools to diagnose. Does this student understand what they're reading? Does this student have the ability to learn this new concept because they've mastered the prior concept? A lot of these things teachers are great at doing in their heads, actually. But the more you can make it visible to the teacher and give them kind of that scaffolding, that extra information about how the students are doing, and tools to say, you, student, work on this project because that's where you're at. You, student, work on that project because that's where you're at. Or this group of students work together. That's giving tools to the teachers that enable them to become uh, learning science professionals. Learning science professionals. Uh, Explain more what you mean by that. Well, over the last 40 years, there's been lots more research into the neuroscience of learning, how students learn, how adults learn. Uh, Some of this research has gotten into education technology products. Some of it has gotten into teachers' colleges. So there's a certain amount of that that if you talk to somebody who's been in education for a while, they know about executive function. They know about how short-term memory alerts to long-term memory and how chunking happens and how additional concepts can be scaffolded on one another as students learn. Um, However, the public and policymakers don't necessarily understand that learning science has advanced as much as it has. We're to a point now where uh, a a big goal of new markets, a big goal of mine, is to get this on the radar for as many people across the country as possible, that learning is a science. We do know what works, and we need to get those things that work into the hands of as many teachers and educators as possible, because people need 21st century skills. It's not good enough just to have the skills that were okay in 1960. That won't get you the middle-class job. You need 21st century skills to get you a middle-class or better job in today's economy. We've been talking with Jason Palmer, who is a partner in the New Market Venture Partners platform, which is an education venture capitalist firm. Jason, thank you so much. Great seeing you. Great to talk to you, Wes. You're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. We've been discussing the future of ed tech, education technology, and how schools around the country are trying to keep pace with this booming industry. We're now going to speak with Dr. John Warner, faculty affiliate at the College of Charleston and contributing writer to Inside Higher Ed, who disagrees pretty strongly with our last guest, Jason Palmer. He wrote a responding op-ed entitled, Why I Am Not Enthusiastic About Ed Tech. John, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. So before we get into the details of the issues that you bring up in the article, let's first talk about about your background. How long have you been teaching? Sure. Well, I've uh, been teaching for the last 17 years, uh, college writing of various kinds at now four different institutions, um, plus another three years of teaching college writing as a graduate student before that. So I have 20 years of teaching writing, first-year writing, freshman composition, creative writing, technical writing, business writing, um, humor writing, any writing you can take uh, at the college level. I've likely taught a class in it. And so when you think about how that technology has been utilized, uh, you know, what areas do you think that technology uh, and particularly these platforms have been useful uh, in, in terms of helping to address gaps, helping to address uh, some, of, some, of, some of the, uh, you know, systemic you know, uh, you know, failings that we've had, and which ones do you think that these have just been essentially land grabs, uh, you know, and, and, and with, a, with a financial focus? Yeah, I, I think so. A lot of this really comes down to the ways technology is used in, in different contexts and different schools. 
if you go into a well-resourced school district, uh, like the one I grew up in, the suburbs of Chicago, or you know, a private school like Sidwell Friends, where President Obama's uh, daughters attended, uh, you'll find things like creative computing, where they have access to uh, the sorts of tools that allow them to think of themselves as sort of future entrepreneurs in the in the tech space. Uh, what you see in other schools is technology sold as a solution to the quote-unquote problem of teaching. Um, and it's often positioned as a way to either uh, circumvent teachers, this is, this is often sort of subtext rather than overt text, mm-hmm. or help teachers manage more students. So we have, we have this term of personalized learning which uh, has clustered significantly around technology and algorithms and software, uh, where the idea of personalized learning is nothing new. If, if, uh, if people check out the scholarship of, of a, uh, a woman named Audrey Waters, who looks into this stuff extensively, personalized learning goes back to Alexander the Great and his, his tutor Aristotle, as she points out. But a lot of this personalized learning technology doesn't really fit the bill. It's about students customizing themselves to a software program that's training them rather than using technology as a tool that leads to education. So my worry as a teacher of writing is that we have students who become very good at passing assessments that are managed and controlled by software algorithms or technology and and aren't really learning the underlying fundamentals of of writing and critical thinking that we tend to think of as most important when it comes to becoming an educated person. So do you think there's a fundamental way and a fundamental difference between how you and and, and other educators view technology and how an investor will view the implication of these these platforms and technology? Sure. Uh, and, And I don't think there's really any problem with this because an investor is looking for what is saleable, uh, what fits the market. Uh, what will return value to either myself if I'm an entrepreneur or my investors if, if I uh, have those. Uh, the, the problem is that what sells and what can be sold into school districts isn't necessarily a benefit to education. We're simply operating from a different set of values. So, so one final question, Dr. Warner. You know, we hear a lot about how online education and the utilization of technology is more democratic, where we're watching students who are coming from different types of background. And, and truthfully, the College of Charleston is a, a very competitive school. Uh, but when we're looking at other schools that might be open access or non-competitive, and you have students who are coming from different types of backgrounds, that online education is a way of being more democratic about how they're getting what they need. Uh, and it has the potential to reach, uh, you know, minorities and, and, and underserved and, uh, and under-resourced students. Um, what do you think? Is, is that real? Is that the ideal? Is that, does that narrative hold true? Or do you think that there are real flaws to that narrative? Well, it, it is true in a sense, in that if you do not have access to any educational opportunity, online is better than nothing. But the reality is that, for the most part, things like uh, Straighter Line, which I know Jason Palmer has been involved in, uh, that you can earn relatively expensive college credit for is a markedly inferior experience to anything you'll get at a face-to-face educational opportunity. Uh, the other worry a person like me has is that by trumpeting these things, these online opportunities, 
that really just serve to to check off a credential box. They are they are not particularly good at, at educating students. We will continue to see this divergence where those that can afford face-to-face uh, high-impact education as opposed to training will have those opportunities and those that can't won't. And all we're going to see is something we've seen with a lot of education technology over the years which is not a closing of the achievement gap, but that those who are the halves of the equation get to use it differently than, than those that don't. Uh, so it's a tough problem. I, I, I don't think there's any easy answer, but I do know that you know, the legacy of education technology does not point the way towards future equality. We've been talking with John Warner, who's a faculty affiliate at the College of Charleston and contributing writer to Inside Higher Education uh, about the pitfalls, potential pitfalls of education technology. John, you've given us a lot to think about today. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. I enjoyed it. You're tuned to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Coming up, did you know you can learn how to construct a driverless car by taking a course online? Plus, Baltimore's own Johns Hopkins University attempts to lead the way in online higher education. That's next. Stay tuned. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance, bring your challenges. Hi, I'm Wes Moore, and today on Future City, we've been talking about the future of education and online learning. We've debated the effectiveness of technology in the classroom and the tension between public education and private businesses. And now we'll see online learning in action, speaking with Salwat Muhammad, who's the vice president of student services at Udacity. Udacity is a project-based online learning site with an on-demand network of project judges. They partner with top employers to ensure their courses reflect the most sought-after skills in the workplace. Salwa, it is wonderful having you on board. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Wes. It's great to be on your show. So let's start by gaining a better understanding of what Udacity does. So for those unfamiliar with online education models, what exactly is Udacity? Is it a school, a network? So Udacity is an online education company where we focus on closing the gap between skills and jobs. So we primarily look at tech jobs and do training in web development, mobile education, as well as data analysis and cutting-edge programs like AI, robotics, self-driving car engineer. And what the students gain is it's self-scheduled, so you can take our classes anytime at your own pace. And what you get at the end of this is these programs are generally six to nine months long, um, and you get a portfolio of projects that you're able to show off to your employers and show that you really do have the skills to get those jobs. So I'm, I'm sure for our listeners who are either uh, you know at their desk or or behind their cars right now, uh, you know you you might have just opened a few eyes saying that uh, that you guys have classes in things like driverless car engineering. Can you tell us a bit bit more about those kind of classes? Who's taking these type of classes? Sure. So the self-driving car engineer program, we're actually the only place that teaches that right now. And our students can, it's really open to anybody to take, but what we generally see is the population is being um, 24 and 35 years of age, which means they are generally, they have college degrees, but they're trying to get into more um, advanced technologies that are, because the tech 
landscape changes so quickly that if you want to get into a new area, you're not going to go back to a college or institution for four years of education again. And since we focus on really the hard skills that you need to enter that industry, they're able to take these programs and get a job as an engineer within a few months. Like we've had students finish a program as quickly as less than a month or taking, because it's self-paced, they can take a little bit longer, but they're job ready very fast. And we really focus in on those hard skills that you need to get the get the job. So how exactly do you measure success for for Udacity? How how do the stu- how do you know if the students are, are getting what they need from these degrees? Right. So we actually create these curriculum by partnering with industry. Um, so for example, if we're looking at a self-driving car program, we're going to be partnered with Mercedes-Benz or Nvidia or Auto who are hi- making these higher. So they endorse their curriculum, they look at that and they know that if a student completes these projects or this curriculum, they'll be ready for a job at their companies. And the way we measure success is how engaged our students are. Um, are they actually completing the projects that are up to standard? We don't believe in the standard pass-fail rate, so we actually believe that every student can complete the program. And so when we look at this, we get them ready. We make sure they have the prereqs. If they don't, we send them to through courses that will essentially give them the pre-requirements. And as they go through each project, it's more about you either meet the specifications or you need improvement. So you can keep working on it until you get it right, uh, which is why we don't go through this pass-fail thing. And that's what students do. So graduation is a big metric for us in measuring success. The other part is whether students are getting the jobs that they're preparing for if they want to. Not every student comes in wanting a new job. They are either looking to upskill or stay within the industry or enter a new tech market. So we look at what their goals are at the beginning of the program and whether we're able to deliver on that at the end. And so when you, the idea that uh, that you want to be able to give students access to jobs, you know, and you partner with a number of employers uh, to be able to do that, what is the feedback that you're getting from employers about whether or not these students are have the skills that they need after they complete their courses. Yeah, so one story that I really love is we had a company, Flipkart, that partnered with us on interviewless hiring, where they said, we're going to actually look at the demonstrated skills of the candidates rather than go through this one-shot, one-hour interview style. So they hired, this was um, in Bangalore in India, and they hired our top Android developer grads from the area. And a year later, we heard that they were within the top 1% of performers. Um, So we do get really good feedback from our hiring partners. We have like 50-plus hiring partners, including Google, Amazon, Facebook, and AT&T, so top companies who have these jobs, essentially. And their goal is very similar to ours, where they're trying to fill those jobs with qualified candidates. And so finally, I mean, do you see Udacity's approach to education as the future of education? Do you see this as essentially uh, being able to replace uh, a lot of brick-and-mortar institutions and a lot of brick-and-mortar schools because you can meet students, more students, where they are? I think universities or educational institutions actually do a lot more than what we're doing. So we're not exactly competing with them. So, And we do see a lot of cl- college graduates in our programs because they're, they're four-year programs. They're teaching students to be global citizens as well as critical analytical analytics or thinking skills that are required versus we're really focused on the hard skills that you require to get jobs. Um, so I don't actually see them as replacing one another, but kind of filling a gap that exists. Like, for example, if we just take the tech jobs, there'll be 1 million tech jobs next year in the U.S. alone that will go unfilled, if given the number of computer science grads that are coming out. And instead of just focusing on four-year programs where this gap will keep growing, 
uh, we provide that uh, alternative that's required to really vitalize the economy and keep keep up the pace with the tech jobs that are being created. So we work in partnership with universities rather than uh, trying to replace them. We've been talking with Salwa Muhammad, who is the Vice President of Student Services at Udacity. Salma, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This is Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Now that we have an idea of what the new wave of project-based online learning looks like, let's turn to one of the oldest educational models, the university. And here in Baltimore, we are home to one of the world's highest-ranked and finest universities and my alma mater, the Johns Hopkins University. And to learn more about how Hopkins is incorporating online learning into their programs, we'll be speaking with Robert Kearns, who's the Director of Online Education at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Robert, it is great having you here. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So currently you work with the medical school, but you've worked on incorporating online education in multiple parts of the university. But before we get into that, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you got into this space? Yeah, sure. So I I started in business school and kind of accidentally ended up in uh, in education. Uh, I was at uh, uh, Babson College in Massachusetts, which was one of the pioneers in online education. Uh, and at the same time, I was actually being sent over to South Africa to teach in some of the, the townships around Stellenbosch. And I thought we were doing great work. But what I saw is these th- two things together is, is that, uh, you know, this is not sustainable to just send folks, you know, over there, that online education was a tool that would let us take the best um, of education and bring it to people that, that otherwise couldn't get it. And so that got me really excited about it. And so from, uh, from Babson, I went to work at a company called Blackboard that makes education software. And then uh, I've spent the last 10 years at Hopkins, first at the business school and school of nursing and uh, most recently school of medicine. So what's interesting, and, and, and in full disclosure, I was on the board of Johns Hopkins. And I remember early conversations that people had about, uh, about online learning and about bringing it, being able to bring some of the product offering online. And I can tell you right now, it caused some pretty contentious conversations uh, where people were saying, not us, that's not an institution like Johns Hopkins should not, not, should not get into that. There was a brand protection issues. There was all that stuff. And and uh, and just few short years, we'll see how quick we saw how quickly that conversation changed. Do you know what was behind some of the early hesitation, and do you know what kind of led to the evolving? in how a, an institution like Hopkins does think about these issues. Yeah, so I think with online education, a lot of universities and, and, and faculty tend to, tend to be uh, more conservative. And so saw it as, uh, and, and a lot of the early online education was particularly poor quality and sort of tainted uh, a lot of people's perceptions about online education. Uh, and so I think with that in mind, a lot of people were worried that, was this going to be diluting down the education? Was this going to be something that wouldn't be appropriate for a uh, university like Johns Hopkins? And I think what we've shown over the last 20 years is that we can deliver online education at the highest quality across a whole wide range of programs. So full online master's degree programs, using online education to enhance um, our face-to-face classroom experience and bringing Johns Hopkins education to the world. Uh, but always with the uh, understanding that we're doing so uh, at the highest quality. Uh, and I think as people have seen some successes, uh, that we've seen those uh, initial people who had some reservations come around uh, and embrace online education as, as a key part of our mission. But what's interesting is that, you know, for a lot of people to understand online education in, in English or in history, that kind of makes sense to them. They can get their heads wrapped around it. But you're at the medical school. And when people think of medical education, we think hands-on. We think actually putting, you know, really having tangible education that plays into it. How does such a form of tangible education play into online learning? Yeah. So a big part of, of what we like to think about is we want to 
create online programs that are appropriate for the subject matter we're discussing. Uh, we're not going to put the traditional residential MD program online, uh, fully online where students w would never come to Baltimore. It wouldn't be appropriate. It wouldn't be creating the kind of high quality education experience uh, for those students. So what we say is where are the opportunities for online ed to enhance that experience? So for instance, uh, we're building out a whole platform for online continuing medical education. So uh, uh, healthcare professionals need a certain amount of continuing education every year to stay current. Um, and, for, and for years and years, Traditionally, if they wanted that from Hopkins, they pretty much had to come to Baltimore. What we're building now is an online platform so that they can get the best quality uh, online continuing education uh, uh, from, from wherever they are uh, and being able to expand that reach. So we're trying to find where the opportunities within medical education, where online education can create the biggest impact uh, without detracting from the teaching experience that we need to have. How has online education changed the demographic makeup of the Hopkins student or the Hopkins alumni. How has it changed and altered the way Hopkins thinks about its impact on, on, on the world, particularly when it comes to their student body? So I think we try and have a, a pretty expansive view of, of what that student body is. So certainly our online degree programs have allowed us to attract and retain students from far outside of Baltimore or students who, who uh, would not or could not want to come to Baltimore. And, uh, and and so that's allowed us to get more diverse geographically. We also are engaging in programs with uh, companies like Coursera. So Coursera is a provider of MOOCs, massive open online courses that let us take our courses and put them online for the world. And so we've had students from 194 plus countries uh, take those uh, uh take those courses and experience the Johns Hopkins education. So uh, while they may not be traditional alums, they are folks who have participated in our education and hopefully uh, are changed by that experience. And now, but MOOCs are also still pretty controversial in many ways when it comes to completion, when it comes to students who will take more than one class or even literally more than one, not even finishing a full course, but taking more than one class. How do people think about the controversy around MOOCs and the data that we've seen, early data we've seen from MOOCs? So the knock on MOOCs is that, uh, you know, a very small percentage of students uh, who start a MOOC complete, complete a MOOC, something like 10, 15 percent, mm -hmm. which seems very low in the context of a traditional academic program. What I think particularly we one like Johns Hopkins University, where the numbers are so completely skewed in the other direction for the traditional students. Absolutely. The way we look at MOOCs is that we have to understand why people are enrolling in MOOCs. Um, you know, MOOCs are more casual experiences. They're edutainment in some cases. Um, the course that you sign up for for free, um, you know, three weeks out may not be the course that you're ready to put uh, a significant amount of effort into. But there's also a lot of people that just want to experience the content, that want to view the lectures, but don't find it necessary to complete all of the assignments, to, to, to do all the work, but can still get the value out of it. And I think that uh, is part of the, uh, the appeal of MOOCs is that people can sort of pick and choose and get a sampling of a particular field. So they can go out and see, you know, if, if I'm a high school student, I can go out and see some of the best education from all the world with no investment on my part. Um, and so, yeah, maybe I enroll in a, in a course, I decide it's not for me, but I've experienced teaching from that university. I've experienced some of that content. Uh, and so when we look at MOOCs, we see them uh, as the, the completion rate is, as not being the, the key driving factor. It's the exposure to, uh, to our content uh, for folks from all over the world, all walks of life, and, and who wouldn't necessarily be able to bring that price barrier down so that they can uh, experience John Hopkins education for free or at a very low cost. So on a practical basis on the ground, you know, obviously this has had will have and has impacts on the financial model for not just Hopkins, but many universities who have incorporated this into their, into their learnings. Where are the professors and where are the faculty on this now? 
So I think that they are are very much coming around and seeing when when online education is done right, uh, that it can really enhance both their teaching, their classroom experience, and, and the university as a whole. We had faculty who were extremely skeptical of this, one in particular who teaches a class on, on Leonardo da Vinci, for instance. And he says, you know, I have to have my students in the class. They need to be able to come and see the, you know, touch the books that uh, were written around this time period. And, and he moved it to a fully online environment, uh, and students loved it because they could do all these really engaging uh, multimedia interactions. They could put themselves you know, in the Leonardo da Vinci uh, world. And he uh, just won our sort of our Teacher of the Year uh, award and has very much come around to online education um, as a, a, an exciting uh, and beneficial way. The other thing that we see online education is, is even if we're not doing fully online classes, we can use online education tools to enhance the classroom through what we call flipping the classroom. So rather than having students come and sit in a, in a lecture hall and, and be talked uh, you know, at from the professor, we can record those lectures. We can put them in a studio like this with great audio, great visuals, really polish that presentation and make that the homework. We have students watch the lectures at night, and then when they come to the classroom and they have their time with the faculty, they're spending it doing active learning. They're spending it having one-on-one -on -one time with that faculty. They're spending it doing casework, using that time in the classroom uh, to its uh, most effective level. We've been speaking with Robert Kearns, who's the Director of Online Education at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Robert, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. You're tuned in to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Coming up, coding and computer science isn't standard in public schools, but one Baltimorean insists that it should be. Plus, a long-term Baltimore City teacher embraces technology in the classroom and has incredible results. That's next. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance, bring your challenges. We're back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City. On today's show, we've been discussing the many ways online education and education technology is changing the way students learn and prepare for the workforce. And now, we're going to talk with two Baltimoreans embracing technology as a way to ensure future success for Baltimore City students. First, we'll talk with Justin Eames, who's been teaching in Baltimore City schools for over 12 years and is the current Director of Technology at the City Neighborhood Foundation. Justin, it's great to have you on board. Happy to be here. So you've been teaching for 12 years and are now doing this work on, on, the, on the technology side. Can you talk a bit about your evolution and how you got to the place you're in now? Absolutely. I came to Baltimore, like you said, 12 or 13 years ago um, through Teach for America. I started off as an elementary school teacher. I was teaching second and third grade for a few years. And really quickly, I became one of the teachers in the school who was embracing technology. Then this was way before things like Wi-Fi and these interactive smart boards and the, the big computer labs that we see these days. In fact, I was one of the first teachers to have one of those smart boards, um, at least in my school. Um, and after a few years, I was helping the city write some uh, curriculum for their math, helping them integrate technology into their math curriculum. And I got a call asking if I wanted to sort of jump up and teach technology full time uh, in, in a high school. And I jumped at it. And I sort of haven't looked back ever since. And a, a while ago, we did a show actually on, on, on the maker space and the makers movement. But you 
oftentimes we'll talk about the interaction between education and the makerspace. Can you talk a bit about a bit more about the overlap that we're seeing in terms of how people are thinking about the makers movement and the ed tech movement? Absolutely. One of the great things we're doing here at City Neighbors is we have a fab lab. And fab stands for fabrication. So this is a great space and it's full of all kinds of things that help kids to make, to create. We have everything from 3D printers to a great machine called a laser cutter. We do sewing, we do woodwork, uh, we do robotics, and we do all kinds of computer um, computer applications. And what really makes a Fab Lab a Fab Lab is that you digitally design, and then you have some sort of machine help you create. So the 3D printer is a great example. You go online, you have to learn these sets of skills to design what, what you want to print. And then you send that information to the printer, and the printer creates it for you. So that's sort of the, the idea behind a Fab Lab. But in order to do those things, to have that creation, you have to also have those digital skills. And so it's this great marriage between sort of the hands-on and the technical. And so when we talk about the hands-on versus the technical, uh, it then also begs the question of what is the goal, right? And so if we're talking about coming up with credentialing, being able to move students through, through academic measures in order to get them prepared for the workforce, how do you see this movement? How do you see technology as a way of preparing them for, for the larger workforce? Do you see it as something that serves as, as an enhancement, or do you see it as something that becomes, uh, you know, a, a, almost a, a bit of a detractor and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, something that more focuses students on one certain segment or area of occupation they can go into? I think there's at least two good reasons, um, at least two, to really have technology infused into the classroom instruction. The first is just that it enhances the instruction and kids learn better when tech is sometimes involved. That's not to say it's always the best. There are tried and true methods that have nothing to do with technology that still work great and should be utilized. But there's also lots of evolving technologies that we would be doing a disservice to our students if we didn't give them a chance to experience. The other thing that we know is we know that we're preparing them for a world that we can't really imagine. Technology is moving so rapidly that it would be impossible for me to train a third grader on the kinds of technology that she will see when she is in college or in high school even because the, the technology is evolving so quickly. So in terms of the maker movement, in terms of hands-on, I think what we're doing is we're showing them how to learn. We're showing them that these systems evolve over time and that they have to be flexible. The other important thing we do is we teach them how to learn. So I won't always be there to deliver the lesson about how to use Photoshop. They have to know how to go online and find the resources they need to learn what they need to know. And so the current system, the current structure we have right now, uh, when we think about the world that we're walking into, not just five and 10 years from now, but 20 years from now, the current structure we have right now is, are we preparing our kids for the world that in many ways we, uh, we can't even envision or, uh, or, or think about what that thing's going to look like? I think we could definitely do better. And I think that education sometimes moves at sort of a snail's pace in terms of how it changes over time. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And a lot of times you'll encounter people who say, it's worked, it worked for me, it'll work for them. But we do have to change the way we think. We have to think about what should we be teaching our students, how should we be teaching them, and what is really important. And sometimes that might not be the same things that were taught to us even 10 or 15 years ago when we were sitting in the classroom. And how many tech, jo how many tech jobs are out there right now? In the education sector? Yeah. Not enough. I think most schools you'll find will have some person teaching technology. And what that looks like will vary drastically across different schools. That might mean that students are learning how to make a PowerPoint. That might mean that students are spending a lot of time typing 
or it might mean that you have this great sort of curriculum where kids are doing Photoshop and they're doing 3D design and they're doing coding. It just depends on the kind of people you have in those positions and maybe even more importantly, the school leaders you have at the top. Because you really have to have those school leaders at the top who embrace the technology and who really want it in their school and who will make sure that the kids have the resources and the teachers have the support they need to really make it a part of the school day. And, and to be honest, I mean, I think it's wonderful that, you know, I think about with my own children, I think it's wonderful that they know how to use an iPad. I want to know, you know, will they learn how to build one? Exactly. So, I mean, a lot of the skills that we, we see from our students, these digital natives, as they're called, you know, I say it's the myth of the digital native. They're shallow skills. They're superficial skills. They're on the surface. And it looks impressive. But, you know, navigating an iPad is one thing. Being able to program the app that they're opening on the iPad, that's way more important. And that's what we have to start changing our thinking and, and switching towards. We've been talking with Justin Eames, who is the Director of Technology at the City Neighbors Foundation. Justin, this, been, this has been great. Thanks so much. My pleasure. You're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. This show has been focused on education technology and online learning, and in particular, the many ways technology is changing how we think of traditional education. And we're now going to talk with a Baltimorean who is passionate about ensuring the next generation is well-versed in computer skills. Gretchen Legrand is the co-founder and director of Code in Schools, and she argues that coding is quickly becoming a vital skill in the workplace, and computer science should be standard class in all of our schools. Gretchen, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Wes. So, so can you tell us a bit about uh, code in the schools and why this was created and why it's so important? Yeah, so my husband and I founded the organization almost five years ago, we're approaching five years now, which is hard to believe, but we, uh, he, he has, is a computer programmer and he's worked in the video game industry for um, 15 plus years. My background was in social work and nonprofit human services. So it was something that we had talked about for a really long time. Why don't we start a nonprofit? Teaches kids to code. Kids love video games. They can make video games, learn to code, maybe go after these jobs because the job market is, you know, there's t- so many openings um, for computer programmers. People can just not find enough. And so we thought it was a really good idea. We talked about it for a long time. And then 2013 circumstances, you know, were right for us. And we decided to just sort of pull the trigger and do it. And, um, and you know, it was clear from the get-go that there was such a need for it. You know, tons of people asking us to bring classes to their schools and their community centers. And so um, we just started doing it and that became a full-time <laughs> thing and now we serve over over 2,000 students a year. And you all have had a core focus as well on making sure that underrepresented groups in tech are actually part of this, making sure that women, making sure that students of color because, you know, to be very frank, when we look at the tech and the coding world right now, it is, uh, it is heavily male, uh, it is heavily white. And also, even though the, the people of color who you often have do, aren't not, do not necessarily represent the students in Baltimore City. Why was that such a core focus of your work and so, such a core focus of the organization? Yeah, I think from the beginning, it was really important to us that we were focused on underrepresented groups. Clearly, like even though it, there's been such an emphasis on it in the past few years and how there are, are so few women in tech and so few um, underrepresented minorities, um, black and Hispanic, it's not getting better yet. I, um, my, my, my daughter is six years old, and I'll share with you a very quick story. <laughs> uh, she actually went to her first uh, coding and STEM oh, uh, class over the summer, Excellent. which we were very excited about. <laughs> but the truth is this. On the first day there, she had to use the bathroom, and they didn't even think to unlock the girl's bathroom. 
So she then, being my wonderful daughter that she is, she then looked at them and she said, then I guess I'll have to use the boys' bathroom. And then she walked in, they had all the boys leave, and she used the bathroom by herself. But the idea that that was a complete oversight to unlock the girls' bathroom was staggering. Staggering. And I think really underscores exactly the point that you're making. Well, yeah, and if you've been following the news recently, you know that the some software developer at Google just had an internal sort of manifesto about why women are biologically unsuited for software development. So it's, it's not it has not gotten really measurably better yet. And it won't until it won't until the pipeline is there. Um, and the pipeline's not going to be there until we start putting a greater emphasis on access. And so if computer skills are so necessary and and people understand this. Uh, They understand how fast these technologies are happening. We understand everything from robotics to big data to all these different things that are now coming on board. Why have we been so slow to be able to incorporate this? You know, I mean, I think the, the major, one of the major issues here for us in Maryland is that there's no dedicated state funding for computer science. So everything that that school systems do, you know, they they want to do it, but there has to be funding there for teacher training and professional development. There has to be, um, you know, access to the right tools. Um, you know, we always, we when we teach computer science, we put a, a huge emphasis on the fact that what you're learning is logic and problem solving, and that's foundational and it doesn't change, even though the tools around us change. However, you still need tools, right? You still need computers that, that work. You need access to the internet. And um, it's the the fact that for many of our public schools, especially in higher poverty areas like Baltimore City, they don't have those things. They don't have Wi-Fi. They don't have um, computers that boot up immediately. It takes them <laughs> a while. And that's that really makes it harder to, to get computer science to every kid. Is it a fear of, is it a, you know, we, we know about things like low expectations. Um, is it a fear of failure? Is it a fear that, that if we cannot get it right, then maybe we should slow walk on how we even try it. Yeah, I think it, I think it, uh, that does play into it. I, you know, I, we one of the things that we really emphasize in our professional developments that we do with teachers is that you don't have to be a genius to be a computer programmer. You don't have to be brilliant at math. I think that for a lot of people, they think that computer programming is magic, or it's something that only really smart people can do, or that they have to have a, you know, have taken advanced calculus to do. Um, and that's really not the case. It's not. It's not that hard. <laughs> but but it, but it's something that does take a real commitment, right? I mean, and you know, I, I many people would argue, uh, and and I think you agree that that coding is essentially a language. I mean, so if we're you know we teach students. Spanish and French and Latin and all these other things, it takes a certain level of focus and it takes a certain level of, uh, of, of, of qualification and classification in order to do it. Should coding be a language? Should students have the option of taking coding as a language uh, instead of one of the other languages if they feel that that's the best way to prepare them? That is something that I, I think people have talked about. In, in my opinion, um, I, I wouldn't want to replace a language class with coding. I, I mean, it's important enough. I think it should just be a required part of our curriculum. We teach kids about the digestive system. We teach them about photosynthesis. And somehow, all of the computer science, knowing how a computer works, um, you know, inside, learning about how we, we give it commands and how the languages are, are built upon each other, that's left out. I, I mean, I'm an advocate for getting computer science into the schools in any possible way. So, you know, whether it's that a student wants to take that instead of, you know, French, probably more useful. Um, They should probably be able to do that. If they, you know, want to take 
computer science instead of, or, you know, maybe a, like a web development class, web design versus, um, you know, drawing or fine arts, you know, that, that maybe should be an option too. I don't want to replace any of the things that traditional education holds in high value because I think that those things are valuable as well, languages and the arts. But, you know, there's computer science and, and computing touches every, you know, subject, really. Computers affect every aspect of our lives now. And we need to make sure we unlock the girls' bathrooms. <laughs> Especially. <laughs> Gretchen Legrand, the director of Coding in Schools. Gretchen, thank you so much for being with us Thanks today. so much for having me. I think our guests for a great conversation about the essence and the backbone of our future city, which is education. But before we close, I just want to leave you with a few thoughts. The reality is the incorporation of ed tech is not a future conversation. It's a now conversation. And how it's going to be incorporated into the classrooms is not an if conversation, it's a how conversation. The truth is the educational system we have in place right now has not created the results that we need. And some tech has positively disrupted a broken system. However, some of that technology has been ineffective, opportunistic, and even detrimental. A future where we replace teachers is not a future that will serve our children. However, a future that provides teachers with the tools and supports that they have so long needed and so long asked for to prepare our kids for a rapidly changing world and economy is a future that we need to invest in. Now, new technology is not going to do it alone. Our government and our society needs to invest in not just what has been, but also invest in what will be. We have to be unafraid to rethink curriculum, to embrace technologies, and to support our families to make sure, as we prepare our students for our future city, that they are inheriting something that they're prepared to lead. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. We welcome your feedback, and you can contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and my handle is at IamWesMore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations that we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. Until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance, bring your challenges. Future City is also made possible by Janine and Josh Fidler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive.